Acts 4, 23-31. The believers pray for boldness. When they were realized that they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who though the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against you, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of the holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the words of God with boldness. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks, Christian. <laughs> wow, 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 wow. I need a cellist. I mean, while I'm on a run, come on, someone has got to play the cello. This is a remarkable story. It's a mini story within a bigger story. And um, it, it, it invites us into an understanding of what the early church was like. But it's more than that. It invites us to be part of the story. All too often, we, we sit in these moments and we intellectually scrutinize what's being said theologically, psychologically, politically, etc., uh, etc., et um, I'm reading a book at the moment by Justo Gonzalez called Santa Biblia, The Bible Through Hispanic Eyes. I like reading literature not written by white English-speaking Westerners. He's a Cuban, and it's an interesting book. I can't say everything that he writes I agree with, but then everything I write he wouldn't agree with, so we're good. But he says this, We do not stand as outsiders to it, it meaning the Bible. We're not outside observers like we are watching a movie. We stand within the landscape. Since we stand within the landscape, we're affected by the landscape. Since we are people of faith, we can even say we are defined by the landscape. We're not speaking of the biblical text as if it were a dead letter, an ancient history, a distant memory. We are speaking of a text in which we find ourselves and our very Lives. Now, this is a very simple story to exegete or to unpackage. Very simple. And we'll go through it. And you know what? I've had some fun. I'm going to use some R's. Why not? I can and I will. But when we look at this passage, and I'm going to open it up just a little bit. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people. And uh, the very simple little R or double R there is release and return. On release, Peter and John went back to their own people. Now, you may say, as you correctly can say, well, I don't really understand persecution, which we don't. We haven't been tortured, butchered, beaten. We haven't been left for dead. We haven't been shipwrecked. We haven't had our ankles 
and even our throats sometimes shackled or attached to a Roman God. We don't really, it's kind of curious stuff. But as we see in that text, Isaiah 61 Speaking of Jesus, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Here it comes, to proclaim liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. And my invitation to you this evening is you don't, neither do I, understand the implications and complications of persecution. But we do understand the weight and the burden of being imprisoned by something. Now, that captivity could be financial, where you just felt held down and there just isn't a financial breakthrough. I love the story and I want the story to marinate in our community, one and all. It could be that you are held captive to lusts. You just cannot beat it. And the hope of this passage is that what the Word of God does is it sets at liberty those who are captive or proclaim liberty to the captives. Whatever it is, you may have an eating disorder, whatever it is, your relationships may always go belly up. You held captive to it. You're actually in despair. You've lost any hope that you will be able to emerge out of that. And this passage's story is not just historically curious, it is personally applicable. The hope is that I can bring my captivity to the Lord even tonight while we break bread and say, you know what, Lord, I'm so sick and tired of being, I was held captive to anger. Uh, Meryl shared a bit of it. We were up in LA. She preached twice this morning. And I told a little bit of my story around that. And anger was never my problem because if Meryl didn't make me angry, I was 20, we were 22 and 18 when we got married. So it was always Meryl's fault, obviously. I mean, I wouldn't just get angry. I'm a nice guy. You know what I'm saying? And so if Meryl didn't make me angry, I wouldn't be angry, so it's obviously her fault. The problem with our captivity is we blame someone else for it. There's always a reason why I am the way I am. I read uh, an article written by a youth pastor who had an addiction to pornography. And he said after weekends, high intensity, youth camp, youth event, youth games, Sunday action, he would slip into his study and open his porn as a reward you know what, you've worked really hard, you deserve this, actually. So there's always something else that validates and legitimizes our prison. And can I argue, dear friends, it's only when I acknowledge and face my imprisonment, my anger, my bitterness, my resentment, that there's any hope of true and real deliverance. But do you notice what they do then? They return to their peeps. Please hear me. When we have screwed up, where does that take me? It takes me to Genesis chapter 3. And it said, Adam and Eve hid from God. And God said, Adam, where are you, Eve? Where are you? This is our time. We walk in the cool of the day amongst the trees and the animals, patting the lions and the lambs. This is our time. He knew but they were hiding from him. They said, we were naked and ashamed. So what does the enemy do? He isolates us. These apostles knew something better. Please, please hear me. This is a deep and profound moment. The enemy will always want to separate you and always want to give you a reason why you're not in community. 
I'm not that fussed as to whether you come on a Sunday night or not. We're not inviting you to a gathering. We're inviting you to a community of people who know you and love you, whether you're strong or weak, competent or incompetent, whether you're having a great week or a poor week, whether you are in faith or in doubt, it doesn't matter. Do you see how jolly intense I am about this? Because what Adam stumbled into and Eve stumbled into while they try to cover their nakedness, if I go into God's presence, I will be exposed. I carry shame with me. The instinct is isolation and separation. And you know, when Jesus beat the devil in the, in the wilderness, in Luke chapter four, it said the enemy left him, here it comes, and waited for an opportune moment. When you and I separate ourselves from Christian community, it is an opportune moment. That quote from Ben Witherington, it is the family of faith in full view. There it is there. I love that little verse. It's the family of faith. Isn't that interesting? Peter and John didn't go to family because family are always not faith adders. Family would say things like, we told you not to hang out with those people. We told you not to be so radical about Jesus. Splash, Jesus, splash your life with a little bit of Jesus, but don't go too rad. Things go a little pear-shaped, you end up in prison. Aha, told you. See, they didn't do that. And we know Peter was married. She may have been there, we don't know. But they went back to the family of faith. That's part of what we glean and gather. Now what the enemy will say to you is, people will judge you. When they see you for who you really are, they will judge you. Wait till, as to quote Merrill, as clean yourself up first. Get a little bit more holy, get a little bit more pious, and then re-engage in community. Community, Christian community, is designed for the dirty, for the hurting, for the limping. That's what we are designed to be and to do where you are loved, cared for. Secondly, not only was there that sense of release, release and returning back to community. I really want to drive that point, but I don't want to dig in there too much longer. Please understand the enemy's tactic is to isolate you. I'm going to tell a story some of you have heard, and I apologize for that. But the, um, before we moved here in 1996, a friend of mine lent me his brand new BMW, and we had an old janky VW. So we felt super, super amazing driving this brand new BMW through the Kruger National Park. I mean, here we're cruising, girls, Dana was eight, Nas, my oldest daughter, was 10, and we're cruising along this road next to the river. It's beautiful, they're animals, they're zebras and giraffes just kind of cantering around the place. And the next minute, we saw the Impala go on high alert. And Meryl said to me, there's something happening here. So I just slowed down the vehicle a little bit and the next minute there was this explosion of life and the, the Impala came and some literally jumped over the car and I'm just thinking my buddy's gonna kill me, they're gonna land on the car and I'm gonna have to limp back into Durban with this car that's been impaled <laughs> or impaled. Not bad, you? That's a good word play right there. Write it down, yeah. But, but they miraculously meant to avoid the car. And as they scattered, a hyena popped up in front of us and a hyena popped up behind us. But the hyena were not in a rush. They just looked. 
And then they identified the young, the hurting and the limping and they somehow communicated to each other and they made directly for those animals. And I realised this is a most remarkable parable of what happens in the kingdom. The hyena comes and he scatters. The enemy. And I can't think of a an animal that describes Satan more than the hyena. And he scatters and he watches. Ah, oh, ah, oh, okay, come, we've got ours. And they start that kind of canter. Short back legs, big front legs. and start cantering. And this injured animal tries to get away, but they've got him or her. However, if they stay in the herd, their chances of survival are magnified several fold. Don't be scattered by the evil one. What they went through, dear friends, it's well within their limit to be dissatisfied, angry, resentful. I gave up everything. I left my wife to preach the gospel and here I am, I'm in prison. I'm getting beat up for all of this. You know what? I'm sick of this Christian stuff. Aha, says the hyena, I got you. Not in a rush. I'm waiting for the opportune moment. I'm coming. Number two, they reported everything that had happened to them. There is great power. I'll just say this briefly and move on. There is great power in the communicated word like we had with Jeff and Susie tonight. Romans 10 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for the voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Is power in the spoken word. Some of you will not remember a word I say and I'm totally comfortable with that. But you will remember Susie's vulnerability. As a mum with two kids, what do I do? Do I have to sacrifice? Do I have to stop working? And then the boss calls and says, absolutely not, work from home, we got you covered. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of God. Number three, this incredible little verse 24 says this, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I want to invite you to discover ever-increasing modes of prayer. Please understand, a quiet whisper is not, a quiet whisper is not the only way we pray. On Tuesday night, we had our work, prayer and worship evening and it was pretty extraordinary. But I was standing there thinking, God, what are you doing? Because the chairs are all cleared out, the, 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 the musos and the worship people are, are leading worship and the presence of God was here, but I just cannot find my way through. So God, what are you doing? And... Um, Oh, now I've forgotten what I was going to say. It'll come back to me in a moment. If it doesn't, sorry. <laughs> but what do we see here? We see the early church's first response was always to pray. They devoted themselves to prayer. It was their instinct. No matter what they faced, their instinct was, let's pray. Remember when uh, Peter was in prison earlier on, uh, a little bit later, and it said he got out, the Lord let him out, and he went to knock on the door, and Rhoda the servant came and opened the door, and uh, she says, oh, it's you, slammed the door, goes inside. Who was it, they say? Oh, it was Peter. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. You know, you're such a liar. This is not even Halloween, and uh, you know what? And she says, no, no, it really is Peter. Because when Peter was in prison, their first instinct, first 
first instinct was to pray. First instinct was to pray. Ben Witherington said, the response of the apostles to persecution is prayer. Not for relief or deliverance from persecution, but for boldness and power to continue to proclaim the Word of God in the midst of this adversity. But what do they pray? Let's have a look at just the next verse because I think it will be helpful. It said, they raised their voices together. Remember when Jesus is quoted as praying in, uh, in Hebrews. Meryl read it this morning. Uh, Meryl, where did you read it from this morning? It's right here. It said, he prayed. I can't find it now. It said, he prayed with a loud voice. Please don't minimize your prayer life to a whisper. Irrespective, if your personality is introverted and shy and quiet, there is something courageous that wells up inside of us when we raise our voices. A friend of mine's daughter who does not believe in God, does not believe in Jesus, hates the church. Her partner ended up in hospital with all sorts of things. And her first instinct, Dad, will you pray? And he was in India ministering. Dad, will you please pray? Why? Because our instinct is that God is there. God does want to listen and God does want to change. Whatever you go through, grab someone with you and get on your knees if needs be and learn to raise your voices. Now, I ask myself the question, there is a prayer written out here. But surely they didn't all just suddenly out the blue pray this. So, you know, they're all in the Spirit and they all say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in it. My guess, my guess is that there was someone leading the moment and the other people prayed alongside. The other people were praying alongside. Meryl was very unwell with our eldest child. She had? That. She had preeclampsia toxima. Exactly. And so... Um, by the time she was rushed to hospital, it was not looking good. And I remember, in those days, it was pre-cell phone. It was 1986. And um, I just thought, what do I do? And I ran to a call box and I called a few people. And one of them was Tom and Una. Tom and Una were dear friends. And I said, guys, please pray. Things are not looking good. NASA's, well, we didn't know. Who, who, who he or she was yet, uh, it was in, gone into fetal distress. Meryl's high pressure, pressure is going through the roof. Now, how many of you know Tom and Una probably didn't just whisper, oh, Jesus, would you just bless her? Okay, what's for dinner, guys? <laughs> how many of you know that they probably got on their knees and cried out to God for their friends because this was a life or death situation? How many of you know, lived, no, they probably raised their voices? Now, what makes the story even more amazing is that 18 years later, their son married that little girl, that little baby that was born that day. It was in the raising of their voices, the cold faith, the loud cries of Jesus that God moved His hand. You may say, Chris, well, why do we have to pray loudly sometimes? Have you ever gone into battle? I know not many of you are soldiers, but have you ever seen a military movie where the soldiers attack Quietly, charge, charge, charge. <laughs> I suspect not. I suspect not. I suspect 
that when we charge, this is a life or death thing, back to the old military days, I'm reading the Battle of Waterloo at the moment, they drew their swords, their lances and their sabres, and they rushed at the enemy, and the little drummer boy amazingly lost his arm with a, with a, 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 a cannonball, lost his left arm and carried on drumming. A 12-year-old kept on drumming. And every time he paused, dum, da, dum, da, dum, and he would pause and the French would say, Viva l'Empereur! Dum, da, dum, da, dum. That's why. It's not that God is deaf, but it's we who have to rise with courage and boldness and conviction and faith. So can I argue and suggest that there was a prayer leader? Can I argue and suggest this is one of the first little informal liturgies? And can I suggest something really powerful happens here? Sovereign Lord, they say. That word sovereign in the, in the Greek is similar to despot, unchallenged authority. And I got that from two theologians because I don't read Greek. But what they say is there's a despot, John Stott, the British theologian, is unchallenged power or authority. Why were they saying that? Because we declare our prayers in the sovereign name of Jesus. What does that mean, Chris? Does that mean everything that happens is the will of God? Of course it isn't. I walk up to you, if I walk up to Phil, uh, Steve, what's your name again? <laughs> it's been a long day. If I walk up to Steve here and I slap him. <laughs> I was in an ice cream shop many years ago and this big guy, Oscar Tulupski, won the, um, the paddle between the Hawaiian Islands a number of times, big guy in, in Durban. And he said to me, Chris, I don't believe all this God stuff because, because all the pain in the world. I said, Oscar, now I'm five foot 10, 11 um, and he is six foot many. I said, Oscar, if I walked up to you now and slapped you, would you blame God or would you blame me? Because if he said, God, I'm off the hook. But if he blamed me as he should have, then his theology, as skewed as it was, is that God isn't responsible for everything. What is God responsible for? The meta-narrative. The meta-narrative, the vertebra of time from the garden to the city. That is what God will do all the way through. And when we within that or under that meta-narrative mess up, screw up, wars, rumours of wars and the rest, God is working those things towards a higher good. I have friends who work in Iran and Iraq and Afghanistan and they're talking about this in, the, in, the, in the spite of Syria, in spite of this incredible trauma right now. There are little pockets of Jesus lovers emerging out of the Muslim world because Allah hasn't looked after us. Is there another God who will look after us? Sovereign Lord, your meta-narrative, your bigger story is what we call into existence here. You who made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything in it. Isn't it interesting? Pause for a moment. Why would they pray that? Do you ever pray that? Look, God, I just want to pray for Meryl because you are the God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything. Do I? No, I don't. What are they praying? God, if you can make something from nothing, you are the divine and ultimate entrepreneur. There was nothing and you made something. So if you do that, Surely you can answer my prayer. Surely like that, you can take Jeff and Susie's situation, 
desperate, a dad and a mom who have to break away from stories they love. I love the fact, incidentally, they didn't tell you which surfing brands they worked for. I will tell you at a small fee. Hey, you know what I mean? I can dispense information. I won't, Meryl. I won't say it loudly. But if God who can from nothing, something, then surely my situation is not that big for him. Not to diminish it, not to shrink it, not to disvalue it. But God, if you can do all of that, isn't that what Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, sovereign Lord, hallowed be your name, we worship you. Your kingdom come, your will be done like heaven. Like you did in Genesis chapter one. Would you do that again now? Would you create something from nothing? Would you turn my situation around from nothing to something? That's what they were praying. They spoke by the Holy Spirit, revelation, the beauty and the wonder of our Christian faith is we're not just servants to a cold, bland book of morals, ethics, and norms. We are a believer, we're believers in the fact that God epignosos, God reveals to us things that our natural knowledge can't always understand. You, you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servants, and then what do they do? They quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against His Holy One. They're quoting Psalm 2. What's the lesson for us? There is a scripture for every day and for every moment. Find it. His mercy is on you every morning. That's what the scripture says. Find the text that's irrelevant. Honestly, guys and girls, for 40 how long have I been walking with the Lord, my love? 1976. That's 47 years. I love waking up early in the morning. And every day I write in my journal, good morning, Father, thank you. And I, and I record the things that I'm grateful for. And I thank Him almost daily for all of you. You are an incredible gift to Meryl and I. But then I lean in for a moment and say, God, what are you saying about? And when I then go to the Scriptures, I'm expecting Him to answer. I'm expecting him to say, here it is, Psalm 2. Why do the nations, this is my text for the day, I say. And that's what they said. This is my text for the day. God has spoken through his word. How are you doing? Do you feel the rhythm? Do you sense the way in which they prayed, declaring God in his sovereignty, the meta narrative, inviting a reminder that he who began a good work shall surely bring it to fruition. He who started something from nothing is one who can work into my situation, and so on and so on. For the sake of time, let me rush on a little bit. I mean, this is exquisite. They did what your power would have decided beforehand should happen. Folks, can I just say this? Our theology, at least mine, and I hope yours, has a deep, what some translations call predestination peace, which means there is, a, there is a, a rest, a shalom in God that much of my life has been crafted by God. I know it's truth intention. I know I make decisions. I know that these two truths, that the steps of a righteous man are ordered of the Lord, and these are the consequences of my decisions. I understand all of that. But honestly, for me, there is such a relief that there is a sense of God's 
planning beforehand. When we moved here in 96, this was hard, man. Being an immigrant is really, really hard. I cannot imagine what uh, uh, illegal immigrants experience because we came legally. I cannot imagine the trauma and the uncertainty and the vulnerability. I cannot imagine. I know the Bible says, look after the foreigners and the refugees amongst you. I know the Bible does say that. But there are times I just had to say, oh God, I believe I heard your word. I believe you have authored this moment that Meryl and I and the girls will be living here in America. I don't want to live here. This is not my destination of choice. I want to be in Asia. This is completely the opposite. But this quiet assurance that God has predestined me and my family to live in America for this time. There is a shalom, dear friends, a peace that this is the handiwork of God. The mess-ups, normally me, or what others do to me. That's called expiation, fancy word. God forgive me for the sins I've committed, propitiation, but forgive me of the sins others have committed against me. The impact, if you've been sexually abused, you know what I'm talking about. I need to be freed, and I need to be freed from that person who has done the most dastardly of things against me, expiation. It's a beautiful expression of the gospel. Let me land. You've been very gracious to me. Thank you. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Jesus is always front and center. And after they prayed, this is where we land, and the last little R is refreshment. I'm sorry, it's a bit kitschy, but it's a fun outline. I liked it anyway. But after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Friends, there is, uh, Stu preached on that uh, a couple of weeks ago where he spoke, and I'll see if I can find it here quickly. Here it is. In uh, Acts chapter 3, verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins, here it comes, so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Times of refreshing may come from the Lord. This is where they were at one more time. From that chapter 3 into chapter 4, much has happened. Easily anger could have crept in, easily disorientation, upset, bitter, or whatever. But this is that moment of refreshment again. We come into the table. And I want to ask you to allow God to minister refreshment to you. One of the authors I wrote said this, refreshment is two things. It's prophetic. I said prophets, I apologize. It's prophetic inspiration. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. All, 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 all. And there was power in speaking. You know, I had a friend who's with Jesus now, Michael Eaton. Michael was a remarkable man. He had a degree, a PhD from Cambridge. English man, short little guy. Felt God call him and his wife to the UK. Uh, from the UK to Kenya. He renounced his British citizenship with all of its privileges and took a Kenyan passport uh, citizenship. Lived there, gave all of his lives. He was, till he died, he was the theologian who was alive, who was, had written most theological works, all of which was geared towards lesser educated pastors in the field. Amazing man. Amazing man. 
But we were sitting one day and, and having a meal. I said, Michael, what do you do to be refreshed? And he looked at me with a big smile on his face. He said, oh, Chris. He said, what my wife and I love to do. He said, we'll take our vacation and drive out to a village and we'll go and preach Jesus. He said, there's nothing more refreshing than that. When you see faces light up in the hardship and the burden of their lives and the hopelessness that so easily embraces them as they have another bowl of maize as their sole meal, as they drink water as if it was something more substantive and the weight and burden of a hopeless life. And we come in and we preach the gospel and their heads are lifted and their eyes become alive and their spirit begins to rejoice. And suddenly the simple things of life that were dragging them down becomes a source of hope and inspiration. He said, Chris, that's what I do to be refreshed. I had nothing to say to him. See, God wants to fill us with his Holy Spirit. But it's way more than a meeting. Everyone come up and wants to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That is crafting a narrative of moments. But we know from... Ephesians chapter 5, it says, be ongoingly, it's an ever-present tense word, be ongoingly filled with the Holy Spirit. And so wherever we get opportunity, I'm landing. Wherever we get opportunity, worship tonight. Thank you, you guys and girls, fabulously well. I was tired. I've been up since really early this morning, headed out to LA. Meryl preached fabulously. I told a bit of my story. We had lunch. We dashed back here, got you in time for prayer. It's been a long day. But there's nothing as beautiful as the union and communion that comes when we literally have happy hour. We stand around the piano and we worship the sovereign Lord together. We are filled with this Holy Spirit. Oh Lord, fill me. I had to say that. Oh God, fill me today. Would you? Would you? I've got to minister to these precious people. It's been a long day. And His Holy Spirit comes and quickens us. And then, just throw that slide up again, Austin, if you don't mind. And as the prophetic inspiration of God falls on us, we are filled with His Holy Spirit and the power to speak the Word of God. Did you see what happened to the two of them? How the life of God flowed through them as they spoke the Word of God boldly. I watched Meryl this morning, second session. Normally it's the brutal one. It's the 11 o'clock one. You're tired, you've preached. Now you're hearing the echo of yourself in the second service. And I watched as the power of God came on her. She told three stories and could barely finish them. Because she was filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. I'm using two public examples, but it's true for you privately as well. I want to invite you to the table of the Lord. I want to invite you to a moment of refreshment. I'm going to ask, we've got a team coming up, if they would like to come up right now.